Welcome to Warm Regards, a conversation with scientists, journalists, and citizens on the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, an Ice Age ecologist at the University of Maine. Last weekend, I spent some time at SCICOM 2018, which sounds a bit like a secret government mind control experiment, but was actually this fantastic science communication conference in Nebraska. And when I was there, I talked with students, teachers, park rangers, scientists, and a lot of folks who work in the media about the challenges that we face in communicating science. And this feels more urgent than ever before. So there was a lot of angst. And I gave a keynote, which people were very gracious to attend at 8.30 in the morning, where I talked about how science communication is really all about learning how to tell good stories. So because I work with fossils, I tend to use the metaphor of forensics a lot. And since I live in Maine and I solve mysteries, that basically makes me Jessica Fletcher, which could be a whole other podcast. But basically, we find mysteries really compelling because there's a hook. We're taken somewhere by the author. We have a clear start, a clear finish. There's dramatic tension. There are clues. We can engage and try to solve the mystery as listeners. And this is a really easy metaphor for me because I love books, including mysteries. Um, I actually worked in bookstores all through college. I even married a writer. I even almost went into theater, and I still love the movies. And my favorite video games are the really cinematic ones that have complex story-driven narratives with lots of choices and drama. So as I've kind of wound my way through this introduction, some of you are probably nodding your head and thinking, yes, I totally love mystery novels. Or, heck yeah, I'm a gamer too. I wonder if she plays Mass Effect. And let's be real, some of you are also probably starting to pull back and thinking you might just skip this episode. But please don't, because I promise there is something for everyone here. And that's because I have learned from folks that we've had on the show, like Catherine Hayhoe, that the story or the message is really important, but so are the connections that you have with your audience. So not all stories work with everyone. And when I go and give talks at places like SciComm, the most common question that I get is basically a version of, how do I talk about climate change to people who not only don't agree, but might act actively be hostile to that message? You can spend all of the time learning all the skills, reading up on all the communication literature and crafting the best story in the world, but your audience may still not be receptive. And in this increasingly polarized country, it can sometimes feel like you live in a different world entirely from the people that you're trying to connect the most desperately with. Here in the United States, where some of these topics are so divisive, it feels like there's not just one America, but multiple Americas. And so this week's guest is here to talk with us about all of the Americas. Dr. Jen Marlin is a research scientist at Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. She's also got a side hustle as a paleoecologist who researches prehistoric fires. That's actually how we met. But in recent years, she's found herself not only studying the science of climate change, but the science of what we believe about climate change and how we can communicate about that. So, Jen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. So everything feels so polarized right now. It often feels like there are two camps. You are either Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal. I believe in climate change or I don't believe in climate change. What are you guys finding at the Yale Program on Climate Communication? Yeah, it does feel that way, Jacqueline. Um, and 
We, well, let me just start by saying that I am part of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. And what we do is we collect a lot of data um, using primarily survey research and questionnaires. Um, and we've been doing it for about a decade now, conducting two national surveys every year in the fall and spring, typically, uh, to try to understand the American response to this issue. And when I say response, I mean, you can think of it as a, a head, heart, and hands approach. So what do people think about it um, in terms of their understanding and misunderstandings of the causes, the impacts, and the solutions? We ask questions about how they feel about it. We've even asked things like how hopeful or angry or sad does it make you feel? And then um, in terms of their hands, what are people doing or not doing about it? Uh, so behaviors might include energy use or energy conservation at home and on the road. Um, we look at social behaviors, uh, whether people are talking about it with their friends and family um, or political behaviors. Do they support or oppose certain policies, for example? Uh, and then we go further collecting the survey data. Uh, we also conduct experiments uh, looking to see whether some messages or frames are more effective than others. Um, we also do some modeling. Um, and so, uh, one of, yeah, one of the most uh, useful and important findings is what's called Global Warming Six Americas um, that identifies uh, a lot more variability out there than just Democrats and Republicans. Wait, so there's six Americas. <laughs> yes. Can indeed. you describe them for me? Sure. Uh, six distinct groups. And so I'll start with the alarmed, um, which is about 18% of the American public. And these are American adults, like over 18 years old. Um, so based on our data from May of 2017, 18% um, of American adults are alarmed. And that means that they believe global warming is happening. They're very concerned about it. They think the impacts are serious and immediate. Um, and that it should be addressed right away. Uh, the concerned is this, the next group. It's about 29%. So this is the largest block of people. And the concerned also believe that it's happening and they believe it's caused by human activities as well. Um, but they're not so sure that the impacts are happening now. They think of it as a bit more of a distant issue, maybe not a super high priority. Uh, then the third group, we have the cautious, that's 24%. So again, a fairly large group, and you can think of the cautious as fence-sitters in terms of whether it's happening or not, whether it's human-caused or not. We have a small group uh, that we call the disengaged, that's 6%, who really don't know much about this issue at all. They haven't thought about it, um, and they don't really see it in the news at all. 12% um, are doubtful that it's even happening. And if it is happening, then they're likely to believe that it's caused by volcanoes or the sun or some of the you know, natural cycles. Um, and probably it's not happening at all. And then finally, what most of us are familiar with, um, because if you go online and you're, you know, looking at uh, discussions about climate change at all, and you know this this issue well, the most vocal community are the dismissives, and yet they're only 10% of the American public. And people are often shocked to realize that it's only 10% who um, really think it's not only is it not happening, but it, it could even be a conspiracy. Um, and so this group is um, small, but, but mighty uh, and very vocal. So that that first of all gives me a lot of hope because 
as someone who talks about climate change on the internet, I interact very frequently with that 10%. Mm-hmm. And so it's nice to kind of remind myself that they're, they're extremely loud, but they are not, they don't, they're not representative of most of America, uh, which is really nice to hear. Right. Um, also, do you have a, oh, oh, go I ahead. was just going to say, there are also many different types, e- even within that group, because you have, people are dismissive of the issue for very different reasons. And I, mm-hmm. I they're not all conspiracy theorists. So some of them actually have played with the data and, you know, have come to their own conclusions or they, you know, it's the middle of winter and, you know, they're, they're seeing the snow <laughs> and they, so their personal experiences, you know, countering what they think. Um, or maybe it's really just kind of about the politics. So there are a variety of different flavors of that group but oh yeah and I, I think I have personally <laughs> no. interacted with all those yes definitely so in general um you said that these are American adults um do you have a good sense of what the demographics are like of so you you've, you have you're reaching a, a good cross-section mm-hmm. of American public Yes. Um, so demographics play into this uh, this segmentation. It's a really an audience segmentation, um, but it doesn't drive, interestingly, it doesn't drive the segmentation. But we do wow. know, uh, for example, women tend, the, the alarmed and concerned group, they, they tend to be women more than men. Not, not hugely so, but women tend to be more concerned about this and they tend to have higher risk perceptions. Um, Interesting. And then the middle groups, the cautious and the dis engaged tend to have um, more people of color in them. Um, The doubtful and dismissive tend to be a bit older. They tend to be white male conservatives in particular. Um, And so there, yeah, so there are demographic tendencies going on here. Um, But when one surprising thing in terms of the demographics is that uh, Latinos, for example, are the most concerned about climate change, which many people don't realize. So it's not, um, yeah, so the demographics can get kind of complicated. Well, so I could, we could probably spend an entire show breaking down each one of those demographic trends because I could, my brain is already thinking of all of these possible hypotheses and, and as to why that those things might be. Um, what, uh, so which of these, this suggests to me as, I mean, I sort of set this episode up as, as being a little bit about audience and, and knowing your audience and storytelling. So what this suggests to me is that there's a lot more breathing room for, for interacting with the American public about the issue of climate change. And, um, and maybe I can give myself permission to not interact with the dismissives, but I'm wondering if you have any sense of which of these groups are more likely, like, where should we fo- focus our efforts? Which groups are more likely to kind of move on this on this spectrum? Are, are people sliding back towards the dismissive end? Or what kind of movement or trends do we see? Or where can we kind of put the lever, I guess, to make the most change? Yeah, I think that's a question we're all, we're all very, <laughs> the million dollar question. What's the right? It's your Nobel right Prize right? question. Um, well, a few, a few different thoughts um, there. One is that Um, One of the reasons we like the Six Americas as a framework and many organizations have found it useful, people are even using in the classroom, for example, um, and in museums, there's a little kiosk actually in Chicago in a museum that lets you type yourself. Um, But what it suggests is that we really do need different conversations. Um, So 
In fact, we asked, we asked people, um, if you could ask an expert on global warming one question, which question would you ask? And well, we found that the responses to that really vary depending on which of the six Americas categories you fall into. So the alarmed and concerned, for example, the most important question to them is what can the world and I do to reduce global warming? Mm-hmm. They want to know the solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the middle groups, the cautious or the disengaged, they tend to focus more on um, wanting more information about the impacts. They want to know what harm is it going to cause? Why should I care about this? Why is it urgent? I have too many other things on my plate or I'm really just not interested. Right. So why should I be interested? Um, and then on the um, on the other side, the doubtful and dismissive. Uh, wanted to know how do we know that global warming is happening or how do we know that it's caused by human activities specifically? Um, And then there is sort of a subtext to that, which is why should I trust you often? (laughs) That's really what they're asking because in many cases, um, you know, the the messengers for a long time have been environmentalists or liberal Democrats um, or scientists, which are groups that the doubtful and dismissive who tend to be conservative you know, they, it's just those aren't the trusted messengers for those groups. Right. So, yeah, it does suggest so, different conversations. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say um, it, it makes me think that there are completely different frameworks. I mean, it, it's almost like I wish I could have these data before I go and give a talk to, to a group, right? Like, wh- which America am I talking to today? <laughs> well, actually, we're, um, we're trying to work towards that. Um, where we originally segmented the six Americas using a, a, like a battery of like 32 or is it 36? Now I'm forgetting many questions. Um, and it's a bit cumbersome and it's expensive to collect all that data, but we have a new tool that we're developing. It's a super short six Americas screener called Sassy, um, <laughs> that lets you identify your groups <laughs> with just four questions. And, um, it's the kind of thing you may have heard of poll everywhere where you can do a survey before you give a lecture on your, with people using their mobile phones, for example. Um, and you mm-hmm. could actually, in the future, we hope you will be able to ask four questions and quickly know what your audience is. So, so maybe wow. it's out there. <laughs> so one, one of the things that we tried to do with the show is um, avoid constant negativity and doom and gloom, because I, you know, I've read a bit about how that messaging can be a big uh, turn off to to audiences, right? They just kind of burn mm-hmm. out at a certain point, whether whether it's you know Syrian refugees or climate change, or you know some other political issue. At a certain point, people just reach reach an empathy saturation or something, or they just feel like they maybe they have too much empathy and they just can't care any longer for their own you know their own emotional health. So, do you have a sense of how? Um, Basically, how sort of positive messaging or or ho- hopefulness yeah. um, is you know might be important in terms of communicating with these different groups. Yeah, I I heard um, from sort of the practitioner community. I've heard that for every part of doom and gloom, you should be offering two parts hope. And I feel that is so true because it is it is depressing and the scale of the problem is truly overwhelming when you come to really understand it. Um, but I, I always remind myself um, that there there are so many so much good effort going on. And, and in many cases, I just don't know about it, although in my position, at least yeah. I know about 
um, about some of it. Um, but we did, this, this question does interest me. I'm working on a paper about what makes you hopeful, actually. And um, we, we did some interviews with people at the, um, this is a few years back now, but the 2014 People's Climate March. We went mm -hmm. out with some students from the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and asked people, what makes you hopeful, um, the ones who came out to march? And the responses, we asked over 200 people and then coded all the responses. And it was very interesting because they fell into generally three types. Uh, there was one response that was basically... Well, I'm not hopeful. <laughs> I'm here out of a sense of moral obligation. Uh, you know, I work for an organization or I'm, I just feel like I need to be here. I'm doing my job, but I'm not hopeful. Um, but I'm here nonetheless. Uh, the second kind of person was um, basically, they said that, well, I wasn't hopeful, but I came up out of the subway system and I saw 400,000 people around me marching and now I'm hopeful. Um, yeah, oh, because cool. they realized that there were other people just like them. Um, and so that was mm -hmm. really inspiring to be surrounded or at least in touch with people who are taking positive steps can be tremendously important um, for those of us working in this area. And then finally, we had the third group, which I just called the super hopeful, for lack of a better word. But they were like, of course, I'm hopeful. Look at what California is doing. Look at what Canada. They just had a carbon tax. You know, look at China just invested $360 billion, you know, of course. And they would just rattle off a list of all these um, things that had just been done. And I wonder if those people are just the natural optimists that they sort of stick to those statistics and facts because they're like, because it reinforces their worldview, you know, it's like, oh yeah, of course, I'm really hopeful. Or if, if knowing that information made them more hopeful over time. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think it's interesting because I came to this field from the physical sciences um, and I was expecting to be to become less hopeful as I learned about the social sciences. Um, but in, in fact, well, actually, I, my hope waxes and wanes. <laughs> but in many ways, I did become more hopeful. Um, I think just because I've learned so much about how many people are, are working really, really hard on this issue and how, how just the scale at which action is occurring, even though sometimes it feels like a drop in the bucket, um, people are inspiring. They, they can be very inspiring. Yeah, it, I, uh, so many thoughts kind of come out of what you just said. And the first one is about the marches, right? Because we've had a lot mm -hmm. of those lately. And it really makes me feel like, I've, you know, people often say, well, what's the point of a march? What are you going to change? And to me, the point of a march is never, is not necessarily actually to drive action. It's really to create, to coalesce a movement, to bring people together, to realize that they're not alone on this issue. And so I always think of marches as beginnings and not as sort of endpoints or <clears throat> or means to an end in, in and of themselves. And so it'd be really interesting to see how, you know, some of these very high profile events like the People's Climate March or the March for Science or, um, you know, withdrawing from the Paris Treaty. Like, I would love to be able to see how these sort of fine scale events sort of tweak the the needle in, in terms of the position of some of these different groups. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys have any specific data on, you know, whether any any particular events have been really impactful or, 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 or made a difference. Because, of course, we're all trying to figure out, right. like, what can we do, right? And so it'd be helpful to know yeah. what's actually working. No, I, I think that's true, that these marches, um, 
they are they are a beginning um but but even even just in and of themselves i think you're completely right they're very important for letting people just for raising awareness of course um but for allowing people to express the you know their passion and seeing how many other people feel the same way um is powerful it really is powerful um my i don't think we have data um you know, in terms of looking at how much a march uh, or event like that moves the needle. But we do know, we did do a study um, with George Mason University before and after Pope Francis um, issued the encyclical, but more importantly, came to visit in New York. Um, because that, oh. that was a really important moment because I talked about how previously and sort of historically the main messengers have been Democrats, environmentalist scientists, um, whereas Pope Francis was really a new voice from a whole new domain. Now you're talking about engaging Catholics and, and others um, who really respect him and were not used to hearing a message about climate change from him. And he spoke very clearly about climate change. So we did a before and after study of that. And um, there was significant change detectable, even with a national survey. Um, people increased their belief that Global warming will cause moderate to a great deal of harm to people in developing countries, for example, by about 15 percentage points. Um, and then worry about global warming changed by eight percentage points just because of his speech in, in New York. In fact, many people hadn't even heard of the encyclical. It was really his, you know, his appearance um, and his message that got through. So that effect was substantial. Um, I don't know. I think there's debate. Um, and in fact, I think it, it probably didn't last in terms of having it's more like a bump in time and then things kind of go back to normal. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like, um, you know, when you get multiple events like this, um, these are contributing to a general upward trend in awareness and concern. Um, but, but tying it to yeah. one particular event or person is really difficult. Kind of like climate and weather. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right. Exactly. I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting because I feel like it's not only, you, you not only have people who are communicating that you've, you're, you're sort of able to build that empathy bridge with them if they're within your in-group, right? What, if I'm Catholic or if I'm, you know, Republican, like we, we've had, um, you know, uh, people from the green uh, Republican oh, movement great. on the show in the past. And I, it's almost like those people can have a disproportionate impact in terms of their, their communication relative to those of us who are sort of talking to, to people that, you know, already sure. kind of agree with us Very in a lot of ways. True. Although there's something to be said for capacity building, I guess, but, um, hmm. so, but I remember it's interesting because I, now I'm remembering that I think you, you told me that, the day after tomorrow had a bigger impact on shifting public perception of climate change than an inconvenient truth did. Ah, I may have said that. Yeah, we we had, and and that wasn't my study. <laughs> Tony Leiserwitz conducted that um, those studies, but yes, that um, yeah, and actually, as I'm recalling, it also had a big effect on Latinos in particular. I believe. Don't quote me on that. Uh, but yeah, those those that movies like that can have a big effect. They really can. Which can be hard for us as, you know, physical scientists. I know you're sort of wearing these two hats now, but where we're sort of, it's easy to get bogged down in the, you know, these are the facts, that movie right. is inaccurate, um, you know, and, and, and just sort of 
you know, at the end of the day, like what's the goal? Is the goal that they know exactly how the thermohaline circulation works or is the goal that they feel compelled to learn more about climate change or to, um, to sort of care about it or think about it in terms of their daily yeah, lives? Yeah. And especially I'm thinking now in the Six Americas framework again, movies or celebrities coming out and talking about it, um, are particularly important for groups like the cautious and the disengaged. Um, yeah, because they are not likely to be seeking out environmental news um, or anything about this mm. issue. So it's just mm -hmm. not going to cross their radar. Um, especially they don't know scientists usually. In fact, most Americans don't know a scientist. And if you ask them to name a living scientist, you'll often get, you know, things like Darwin, Einstein. <laughs> um, people just don't know right, right. many scientists. But anyway, um, visuals, um, information associated with uh, celebrities, these are these are really important. And also those groups are better reached through sort of peripheral processing. Um, we know this through some research and insights from psychologists who um, have, in fact, there's a paper uh, um, by Connie Roser Renault who um, has talked about how to reach each of the six Americas. Um, and she has some mm. stats and they're like close to 70 to 80% of the cautious and disengaged pay little or no attention to global warming. Um, and 75% of the disengaged, even though it's a small group, um, they have difficulty understanding global warming news. So the messages need to be simple as well. And they're not paying attention to the nuance. You know, if we get the physics wrong in the day after tomorrow, like, as you said, it's just, it doesn't matter that much. The, uh, the basic idea is like, this is happening. It's a real problem. The impacts are really bad and they're going to get worse if we don't do anything about it. Um, simple, clear messages repeated often by a variety of trusted sources. Um, that is sort of the guiding heuristic uh, on how to get information out there to groups that are hard to reach and to, to people in general. Um, Ed Maybach from George Mason University. I don't know if you've ever had him on, but uh, I think he has that as like his Twitter <laughs> signature. Simple, clear messages repeated often by a variety of trusted sources. Um, and it's so true because we're bombarded by so many different kinds of information now we just unless something is repeated over and over again um we just don't hear it mm. so when when people like mark ruffalo or leonardo dicaprio huge. start talking about climate change uh yes. that's huge and i guess also yeah thinking about the um years of living dangerously when i first saw that i was i was feeling a little bit like i don't know salt not salty that's a strong word but just like, why are they having these celebrities translating these scientists, uh, you know, in the field? But it sounds like th that pairing is actually really powerful. And there's research mm -hmm. behind yeah, why that would that's work. That's exactly right. Another, cool. I, I'm sure you've talked at length about this, but the reality is that it, you can't really design a worse problem than climate change to try to get people's attention and get them emotionally engaged with it. I mean, just starting with the fact that we can't see CO2 molecules floating out there. It's invisible um, mm -hmm. onto its complexity mm -hmm. across space and time, you know, its causes, its impacts, its solutions. Almost everything about it is complicated, abstract, distant, distant in mm -hmm. space and time. Um, yeah. yeah, uncertain and yep. affecting everyone differently yeah. in different ways. 
Um, well, so I want to talk a little bit about um, the sort of per perceptions of, of the scientific oh. community across groups, um, ac across the six Americas. So we always hear this 97%, right, that 97% of scientists uh, agree that um, climate change is real and caused by, by people based on some of the previous studies that have focused on the scientific community. And yet we often hear that, you know, a little under half of Americans would, would mm -hmm. say that about scientists. Um, so not that not that under half of Americans believe in global warming, but rather that the scientist, there's like a disconnect between what scientists say about climate change and what the American public thinks scientists mm -hmm. say about climate change. So could yeah, you talk about that? There is a huge gap. Um, even among those of us um, who are studying the issue um, and engage with it, the alarmed and concerned, for example, do not know how strong the scientific consensus is. So we have collected a lot of data on this issue in particular because what, whether or not there is a scientific consensus is very important because most of us, we just I just alluded to the complexity of the issue. We can't make decisions about this and we can't know all the details. Even as a scientist, I only know the tiniest little slice of um, you know, information about my sort of specialty in climate change. Um, so we rely on experts, just like we rely on car mechanics or doctors or, you know, airplane pilots to know what they're doing um, in domains that we don't have a lot of information about. So, uh, you know, knowing who the experts are and what they think and whether they've come to some kind of consensus is very important. Uh, in fact, we talk about it as a gateway belief. If you understand that 97% of scientists have looked at the evidence very carefully and concluded that, yes, climate change is real and it's bad and it's caused almost entirely by human activities, um, then you're going to be kind of befuddled and you're going to put it on the back burner and not think about it. Mm -hmm. So we presented people with a slider bar, in fact, and said, please estimate what percentage of climate scientists you think believe um, that climate change is happening and caused by human activities um, like fossil fuel burning. And, and um, the only 15% of respondents gave us a number above 90%. So, yeah, so wow. people really do not understand that. Most, most people will say maybe it's about 50-50. Um, and there are many reasons for that. So, I mean, first of all, scientists are not known to be wonderful communicators. <laughs> um, as, we, we, as we know, it's challenging. Um, but there's also sort of false balance in the media. They often, you know, will, will have... Um, a climate scientist and then somebody from industry and you're, you come away from it thinking there's this, this debate and there have been movies made about this. And um, so anyway, there's a lot of misconception about the strength of the scientific consensus, even among the alarmed and concerned. And it's a message that's important to reinforce, to get, to get out there. And it's also a message that has been directly attacked by the fossil fuel lobby because they know it's important. Um, and it's the same playbook that's been used by the tobacco industry um, to discredit, uh, you know, messages in the past about why people should not use tobacco. Yeah, so I want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, that 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 dismissive mm -hmm. group, that 10 percent, um, which includes, as you say, a diversity of different perceptions, they seem really organized and really well funded. So 
What does that say about us on the concerned and alarmed end? They are really well organized and well funded. And we frankly are not. The 18% who we call the alarmed in the six Americas translates into 44 million people. So that's huge. (laughs) There are a lot, there are a lot of people in that category. And yet we have fantastic organizations um, that are growing and gaining traction, but there are so many others, um, people who just are sort of still sitting on the sidelines um, and not, not stepping up, not reaching out, not speaking out. Um, and in fact, we've the group has written about the spiral of silence around climate change because it can be really difficult to talk about this issue, as you know very well, and I know as well. Even talking about it with my dad and my, you know, my brother-in-law and various other family members. But it is important to to make the effort. Well, it's it's interesting because you you have this tremendous demographic data, but like we have we don't actually have any idea who listens to us um, on on the show, right? Who who subscribes to Warm Regards? That's something that it's been on our list to try to figure out, and we don't know if we are just reaching other scientists or climate activists. Um, but it sounds like even if we are, that might be okay because we're kind of capacity building, which is still something that I think our that's really absolutely needs. right and. Part of engaging this issue is figuring out your own voice and your own message and trying to become a bit less reactive, um, you know, just engaging in whatever debate pops up around the dinner table and instead sort of focusing on your own strengths and finding the people who need that information. I think Catherine Hayhoe actually talked a little bit about that on a previous episode, but I would suspect that most of your listeners are quite engaged in the issue, whether or not they're scientists, I don't know, activists, advocates, interested educators, um, just the the general public who care about the issue. Um, But building that issue public is really important and um, giving them good information, helping them understand that, you know, knowing your audience is important, that simple, clear messages are important, repeating yourself is important. Um, and sort of, yeah, building building that group and supporting um, people who are willing to start organizing or get involved in organizations, taking whatever next step is appropriate for them. Um, that's really important. That's just as important, if not more important than engaging with the dismissives. I would, I would much rather work in, in that realm, the former realm. <laughs> Yeah. So um, in your capacity, you must have your ear to the ground and hear about a lot of really cool initiatives. So or, or what what do you think our, our listeners would be most interested or excited to hear about, whether that's something you guys are working on at Yale or some something that has well, you, you really mentioned the lately. Republican um, group, which I, I love hearing about that. Um, I, I Citizens Climate Lobby is a great organization. 350.org is a great organization. Um there, let's see, there's a, a fascinating initiative called Climate Matters. Um, this is not, I, I don't know that there's a way for the general public to get involved, but I just love to know that it exists. Um, and they have a Facebook page, Climate Matters. But basically what it is, is it's an initiative to help broadcast meteorologists on TV um, explain the relationship between weather and climate and connect those two things for viewers when you're just checking the daily weather. 
Um, so, and they have um, really great little stories about the effects of climate on craft brewing, for example, in the Twin Cities. They talk about how warmer mm. winters are affecting the ski industry, um, shifting cherry blossoms uh, season in D.C., like that's affecting tourism and pollinators. And, and so they're making right. the issues local and making climate change really relevant to our daily weather because it is. Um, there is a strong connection. and. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and for many right. people who are not in the alarmed or concerned, they don't hear about this problem at all, really. Um, they might tune into the weather. Most people do actually check the weather. And apparently, as we get older, we check it more and more, I've learned. <laughs> so. Well, and it's interesting, because when I do hear people who surprise me, sometimes that I, I sort of, I, pre, I would predict that they're in one America and they actually end up being in another, but they often, they're often older folks who talk about the things that they have seen in their lives that have changed through time, right? Like, well, I remember, you know, we always used to have snow before this time. Like here in New England, for example, our winters are starting later and our springs are starting later. There's been this weird shift where, you know, we often don't have snow until January and then the snow is sort of persisting because we get these, you know, we're getting all these nor'easters and, and so sometimes when I hear folks sort of making those personal connections on their own, um, I don't know, that, that gives me hope for some reason. It's just, it's like, well, I don't know about that climate change thing, but I, I sure do know that, you know, the ice on the lake isn't the same as it was when I was little, you know? And, uh, and I think we can, those, those personal experiences and personal stories could probably be leveraged a lot more powerfully. So it sounds like some things like climate matters are, are really going to connect with those folks who, who might not be super jazzed about the science per se, but, if you can just make the connection and they can say, oh, yeah, that's something I see, it makes that invisible part of climate yeah, change more visible. So, yeah, so we we have just a few more minutes. But one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about, I feel like I could talk to you all day, um, is you, you know, you are a paleoecologist like me and and you've made this shift into uh, doing more social science research, although you're still very active in the in the physical science community. But what is what has that been like for you? It seems like different worlds, different languages. I mean, have, has it been challenging? Has it been fun? Has yeah, it been frustrating? that's a great question. And I, it has it has been all of those things. <laughs> um, I, I do feel like there are different cultural traditions, um, especially around publishing. And I'm still I'm still learning, but I've been working in the social sciences for, for about five years now. And I, I feel like I've basically gone back to get another Ph.D. Um, and it has been um, it's been wonderful uh, working on social issues just from a personal standpoint, because I was working on paleo fire, as you mentioned. And while I find that intellectually fascinating, I do feel like this is so much of a social problem right now. Anything I can do to really support um, more dialogue and communication is, is really valuable. And it's where I want to be spending a lot of my efforts. So it's personally satisfying to be working more in the social domain. It's also harder in many regards um, because there's often, there's just less yeah. data mm -hmm. available and there is less money available to do it. The social sciences just don't receive as much funding as the, as the natural or physical sciences um, by orders of magnitude. Um, and there's just a, less of an emphasis on data, even in terms of publishing. I, I feel like on 
on the physical science side, if you have, you know, a good data set, then people don't care as much about your introduction and lit review and writing when you're trying to publish. And, and yet on the social science mm-hmm. side, it's very different. The writing is, is critical. Um, and the data, the data is important too, but it's just, it's not all of it. Um, so yeah, there are many, there are many differences, but um, we increasingly need, we do really need an emphasis on the social sciences to tackle this, this issue in particular, because it's a social problem. It's interesting to me because one of the things that I've been thinking lately is that everybody has a hot take on how to be a good communicator or an effective communicator. And as scientists, we often forget that there are people who study this, right? They're out there studying the psychology of belief and perception. They're studying the efficacy of these different communication techniques. They're studying, you know, who believes what and and how you get people to change their behaviors. And so it's really, I, I just think it's really great that we have people who are building these bridges between these communities because I feel like often we don't interact as much as disciplines and we, and we should because climate change is, is too big of a problem for any of us to tackle alone as a discipline. And, you know, there are folks like me who tend to do a lot of, you know, giving historical context and diagnosing the problem and, and showing the evidence for for climate change and its impacts in, in the world. And then there are the folks that are really tackling the, the the messaging and the policy and how we get people to change what they believe. And, you know, no, nobody can do both, although it seems like you are really effectively, which kind of makes you a superhero to me. But um, yeah, I don't know. It just, I think it's really, I think we need more people who are doing this interdisciplinary work. And I think it's really, really difficult. Well, but thank you. I'm so glad is, that you're doing it. It is challenging and I'm definitely uh, stretched and I, there are trade-offs between depth and breadth, of course. Um, but, but yeah, there, these, these intersecting, these ed- edges um, for those of, of your listeners who are in academia, um, publishing in these realms, anyone who does interdisciplinary research is very, you know it's very difficult. There are really aren't even many journals <laughs> where, where that are high profile that everyone reads, um, except for maybe climatic change. But all kinds of all kinds of challenges to doing this work. But we need it. We need more of it. And I know many of your listeners are doing it. So mm-hmm. thank you to them. <laughs> Well, so those of you who are in the alarmed and concerned categories, we need more organization. So one of the first things we should organize around is is making sure that we have funding and places to communicate and you know broadcast these kinds of uh, research initiatives. So uh, for those of you who are wondering what to do next, I would say definitely go and check out the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and especially the, the Six Americas Project. Um, Jen, this has been really Thanks fun. So much for Thank having you me. so much for coming on our show. So I, I think we'll leave it there. Um, I've given you all homework, so there will be a quiz next week. Um, that's our show for this week. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Please follow us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. You can subscribe to our feed on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. We really want to make this your show as much as possible. So if there's something you think we should discuss, let us know. If you have an idea for someone we could bring on as a guest, we'd love your suggestions. Um, You can self-nominate. We're always happy to hear from you. You can email us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. And if you have 
a bucket of money and you're looking for a way to make an impact, we are always looking for sponsors for the show. So feel free to email us and reach out at ourwarmregards at gmail.com if you would like us to share your amazing efforts or products or initiatives with our listeners. So thank you so much. And for our producers, Jesse Ann Baines and Eric Mack, I'm Jacqueline Gill, and this is Warm Regards. Be well, everyone.